Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil, PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Today, we have the opportunity to chat with Dr. Sharon Block, Professor of History at the University of California at Irvine, about her recently published book by her friends at Penn Press entitled Colonial Complexions, Race and Bodies in 18th Century America. Welcome to the show, Dr. Block. How are you doing today? I'm really good. Thanks for having me, Adam. You're very welcome. Um, you know, we are, our, our conversations go all the way back, obviously, in the summertime. So, you know, and I've, and I've heard you speak uh, uh, to actually a couple of times, actually, at that, um, at the University of Delaware. And, uh, you know, just want to reach back and say thank you for that. And thank you for coming on the program. It is definitely a pleasure and an honor to have you on. But before we get into Colonial Complexions, can you talk to us about uh, what brought you to this project? Absolutely. Um, It's kind of an interesting shift because my first book was History of Sexuality, looking at the history of rape. Um, And what I realized with that book is that race really was central to the book. If you look at the cover of the book, there's a picture of an interracial rape, sexual assault pursuit going on. And it occurred to me that I had taken race as a given in that first book, which I think was important in order to be able to talk about the way that black men were persecuted in prosecutions of rape, the way that white men were seen as automatically not guilty of rape, the way that black women were not seen as victim, legitimated victims of rape, the ways that white women were. And so race was central to that book. But when I wanted to start a new project, I really wanted to think about the ways that race was made on a daily basis. I wanted to look at sort of taking bodies, what I had learned about the importance of bodies from history of sexuality, and putting bodies, physicality, back into our understandings of the construction of race in the colonial 18th century. Um, Combined with that, in between the two books, I had spent some time doing a fair amount of digital humanities, started on that kind of in sort of the first wave or before the first wave in the early 2000s, really thinking about how we can use technology to write histories that are otherwise unknowable to us and to write histories that perhaps recenter people who have often been put to the margins. And so I took some of the ideas of digital humanities, the, the importance of digitization, access to sources, the idea that ephemera a few lines of an advertisement for a missing person when aggregated in large numbers can really show you patterns in cultural beliefs. And so I took all that together and thought, I'm going to go to a a source that has been used a lot and try to look at it in a new way for my new project. And considering the the prominent blurbs that you have on the book from uh, phenomenal contributors to the University of uh, Pennsylvania Press, i.e. Melissa Fuentes and Jennifer Morgan, I would say that those are two pretty great cosigns to say that you definitely accomplished that with uh, with Colonial Complexions. Well, I was honored to have both of them comment on the back of the book. And, you know, you never quite know who will blurb your book or what they will say. So it's always a little bit nerve wracking. Um, so I was especially honored by them. And as well, Elizabeth Reese. I think she wound up on the inside cover, mm-hmm. um, but who is a scholar of bodies and has done amazing work on um, intersex bodies throughout U.S. history. I thought the three of them together kind of nicely focused, sort of, sort of was a testament that what I was trying to do 
by combining the study of bodies within, in order to understand race in early America seem to, seem to have worked out okay. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. And and so you talked about the um about about the a bit about your methodology and and try to employ you know uh, a different uh, views on the particular sources. Can you dive a little bit deeper into kind of like the methodologies that you incorporated? Because I really thought that um that those were really important um to to the construction of your book and also why it is such an intri- intriguing read. Uh, especially for you know us in our uh, material histories of the body class. Shout out to you, Zara. <laughs> and I will shout out too. When I got to talk to that class, you all were a great class with wonderful questions. So shout out to all of you. Um, yes, there we go. I love talking about methodology. I'm really interested in how the way we go about constructing histories directly relate to the results that we have, to the arguments that we build. And maybe that seems obvious, but I think too often we don't pull back the curtain. And so I was really keen to have, at the end of my book, there's a methodology essay where I tried to be transparent about the work I did. Um, For me, the methodology here starts with gathering 4,000 advertisements for missing persons, commonly called runaway ads for servants, enslaved people, some deserters, some people who escaped from jail in the pre-revolutionary colonial 18th century. Um, And what I tried to do is say, okay, what is every piece of information in these ads? What can I see are patterns that aren't visible to the naked eye, but when you gather 4,000 of them, they begin to show. And this is sort of a different use of advertisements like these. I think they've been really productively and importantly used to talk about enslaved people's lives, to talk about servants. Some people have been using them to talk about um, geography, right? Where do people go? Familial relationships. Um, Recent book on Ona Judge is sort of a fantastic example of this um, Mm -hmm. by a former professor from your neck of the woods. Um, Oh, yes. Yes. Um, And so, but I wanted to do something different um, and think about how we can use these to write a cultural history of race, to really try to see the daily race making that went on in colonial society. Um, How, so I'm very interested in careful parsing of language, right? And I didn't want to do another intellectual history of race, although again, those are really important. Um, I wanted to talk about what was happening every day, what was happening in colonial newspapers that people read in taverns and shared with people, what was sort of the closest thing to, common talk and kind of gossip that we have surviving from the colonial period. Um, So that was sort of my general methodology. I don't know if people care that much about the technical specs. (laughs) I can go into them if anyone actually does, or you can read the methodology essay at the back of the book. Yeah. You know, and and I thought that, um, you know, I don't always ask about uh, the methodology uh, of, of, of each scholar's book, but I thought that it would be insightful to do so with yours because, because I feel like it's very hard to talk about um, uh, colonial complexions without incorporating um, at least some elements of, of how you went about uh, your book methodologically. Um, so, so, so I definitely appreciate you for, for breaking that down. Um, and so I noticed as well, you know, we are in the, on the African American studies channel, but you know, your, your, your concept of race and bodies in 18th century America, isn't just, uh, uh, reducible to, um, African or, or African American bodies. So can you talk to us a bit also about, um, 
how you how you went about like looking right f- i guess for the bodies in the archive and also what kind of archives are you are you uh, incorporating for this for this work because i know that you had mentioned the, the newspapers yeah, but- yeah absolutely just writing that down so i don't forget and on the topic of forgetting shout out to erica dunbar who whose book i was referencing and forgot her name yes minutes yes. ago never caught never caught <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. thank you um yeah, so um, I'll start with the archives. So the, what I'm primarily looking at are newspaper advertisements throughout the colonies from 1750 to 1775. I think 25 newspapers uh, in more close to a dozen colonies. Could be wrong about that one. Um, but so it definitely is looking at breadth. What, I'm, what I looked at in addition to that were scores and scores of writings, um, print writings, popular writings, transatlantic writings to help fill in what the meaning of various language was. One of the big things and what the title hints at is that I'm interested in the concept of complexions. I'm interested in a period before skin color is the primary racial identifier in the way it would in the, be in the 19th century. And so to understand that, I really looked at, I used primarily digital sources for this book. I'd say almost exclusively online sources and I can talk more about why I did that and what I think is important and potentially problematic about that in our new digital era. At the moment, I'm happy uh-huh. for the digitization that exists, even if it is not perfect and has issues. Um, that it does. Yes. But for me, it was trying to figure out how do I understand what colonial people are saying? How do I bridge the gap? of the distance between the language they use and what that language means today. And in some cases, it's very similar. But in a lot of cases, I found there are real differences in the way that colonial Americans conceptualize bodies and appearance and what mattered to them. Um, One of the basic examples I give is that for us, when we think about what are the basic descriptors you give about someone, height, weight, eye color, hair color, right? Weight was never a numeric category in the 18th century. Occasionally, body shape might be mentioned. But eye color is really surprisingly unimportant to context. Maybe 10% of the time they mention someone's eye color, and it's kind of on a different sort of scale, a different sort of um, color scale than we would use. And this struck me that what these advertisements for missing persons for runaways that seem self-explanatory actually aren't. And so I thought really taking each bodily feature, each bodily description could help to understand that, to say, what does it mean when someone gives a height? Um, And as you said, this is African-American history. One of the things that I think has characterized most of my scholarship is that I think it can be very important to do comparative history. So when my book on rape, it was really important because people had said, well, black men don't get convicted of rape 20% of the time, therefore it's a fair legal system. And my response is, yeah, but if you compare it to the white men who don't get convicted, say 70% of the time, that's an important data point to be able to compare those two. And similarly here, what I wanted to do is compare the ways that colonists wrote about African descended bodies, native descended bodies, and European descended bodies, and how their descriptions of each reveal their sometimes subconscious and sometimes culturally shared beliefs about what race was and what ethnic differences mattered and different didn't matter. Um, And for me, that meant that 
physicality is really a part of the making of race and the construction of racial meaning. So that it is not that a person is black and that has innate meanings, that race is an ideology. Race is a way of employing material needs into cultural concepts. And that's really what I wanted to show working on a daily basis. Not sure if that answered your body's question, so feel free to repeat if I went off that there. No, I, you know, I, I definitely, um, I, I think that your answer was, was really directly to what I, to what, what I wanted. Um, because I, because I really think that, you know, like you said, like how people, how we consider, like, you know, we look at, uh, the returns, right? Yesterday was the election. So, um, what do we look Yeah. Oh Lord. Yes, it was. Um, so we, we see, you know, we talk about bodies, right? We look at the demographic polling, right? Uh, for the exit poll, right? You know, us, you know, 8% of a particular state is, is black, uh, uh, or black men and 10% are black women, you know, and it breaks it down, breaks it down. And then we have all these firsts with all the different, um, you know, uh, uh, black, uh, queer and, 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 and native, uh, native or, you know, and, and I, and I think you might even remember this, you know, I think I, uh, asked a question of the difference, you know, what happens if you consider someone indigenous versus native American? Um, because, you know, so, so, so like all these different concepts, I think were, were, were very, you know, earmarked within, uh, your, your, uh, your, your, uh, answer. Um, but I also think that, you know, going to like that last little bit that I brought up too, right. The problematizing of, of designators, right. And you talked about this in, in your, in your back, in the, in the, in the, in the last portion of, of your text, um, to really ground the, the, the reader with, you know, kind of like how you describe, you know, how you define each body. Um, and I think it's important because when you look at like the difference between native, like what does your book look like if you say native in comparison to indigenous? Can you can you um, break that down a little bit further too? Sure. Um, and I like your phrase, the problem, problematizing of designators. And I will say the last section of the book I think you're referring to is the epilogue, which actually right. is not entirely common for a colonial history book because we can sometimes be a stodgy field. Um <laughs> My epilogue really is about the current day, and it's about seeing mm-hmm. the effects of this, seeing the way that centuries of race made to seem real continues to have effects today. And so throughout the book, I made the choice, and my pen editors were wonderfully supportive, of not saying black and white, of saying African-descended, European-descended, Native American-descended. Um, and you're right, Um I'm not sure what difference it would make saying indigenous descended. And this is always a, this is always a question, right? The language we use. And I think that the language we use in one moment becomes less appropriate or less meaningful in other moments. Um, I think around, Mm -hmm. I thought a lot about um, Indian, native, native American, indigenous. I think these things, all of them are used sometimes interchangeably depending on the person right? Modern people might say, talk about being Indian, right? Meaning indigenous. Other people might talk about indigenous. Other people might talk about native peoples or first nations peoples, depending on the geographic location. Um, Right. I tried to have terms that were necessarily disruptive that marked a moment in the text that it was not the term that everyone is used to seeing. It's it makes my text more clunky, clunky saying, 
when you compare African descended to native descended and European descended people, that, that is a lot clunkier than using the common terms. But I want that disjuncture because my goal is to have little reminders that these are constructions. These are constructions of who people are. This is not who people are. And so if I want to deconstruct the way that language, the way terms like Negro and mulatto and Indian are used, I felt like I needed to have language that was clearly set apart from that and clearly an imposed language rather than a language that we impose regularly, like black and white, without even thinking about what we're doing by that imposition as historians. Yeah, and, and, I, and, and I appreciate that because um, how people, you know, and, and, you know, like you said, you know, how you describe someone is, you know, sometimes I, I remember I was, uh, I, I work in, in, in North Carolina and in, in uh, Cherokee, North Carolina in the mountains and National Park Service. And I remember I had a conversation with, a um with a colleague uh, when I had just gotten there and you know there are not many there, there are just not many black folks period in those neck of the woods there's like one or two in the whole county and they all work for the park so that's kind of saying something and then um I remember we were you know driving in in the Smokies and she asked me you know so so I, I, so effectively she asked me like what do you what do you want me to call you like not as far as like Adam or like my middle name but like you know is it black? Is it African-American? Is it right? And so at first I'm thinking like, oh God, we're already getting there, huh? Right. <laughs> because I'm in this car, you know, we're driving to the mountains. So it's like, you know, it's just the two of us. And um, I just thought like, you know, to let her know that this is right. What I tell you, it all depends on the conversation, right? Because calling yourself black uh, uh, in comparison or in conjunction with African American, right? It all depends on the audience, and it all depends on the on the on the context, right? Context is is, is king, right? Um, or queen, and so and um, I, you know. If I can just yeah. say one of the things that I thought a lot about is that black is powerful, right? Claiming blackness is mm-hmm. is is powerful and important, and plenty of you know if we talk about what people do, there's a movement, hopefully long accepted by now, to capitalize black. Right. As when talking about yes. people, not when yes. just talking about the color. Right. And to mark that. And so I had to think about, right, in some ways, my book, it, it isn't going against that because I support that, but it's doing it's, it's a different project. It's taking that apart. And so um, I thought a lot about how do I tell an aggregate story of racial ideology and still not erase, still do justice to the people I'm talking about. It's a really hard thing to write a history of 4,000 people in a, put them into a narrative in a way that um, I really tried to offer as much acknowledgement, respect, and um, context as possible, which is a hard, I mean, that's another methodological thing. How do you write at that high level of patterns, which are so displaced from individual lives, and still try to show the importance of the lives, the importance of trauma, the effect of this racialized language that I'm tracing. And so that was something I definitely had to work at at various points in the book. And and with that as well, um, 
you know, one of the parts, um, because I, I do my best now to not go to like chapter by chapter. It's, you know, it gets a little clunky. It gets a little boring. Um, so, so the part that I, and it assumes I remember what my chapters are about. <laughs> okay. And, and I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. It's hard for me to remember just what I did yesterday, much less someone who's written, you know, now two books and is doing all the great things you're doing at, at UC Irvine. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, one of the most fascinating chapters that I thought of that, that I engaged with in your text was um, actually chapter four, categorizing bodies, race, place, and the pursuit of freedom. Um, you know, how, how did you go about, you know, the categorization, the categorization? Because I also thought about looking at how um, with your book, you also have a lot of diagrams. You have a lot of you have a lot of just context, right, with your work and a lot of um, graphing. And so uh, with, with that, can you talk to us a bit about um, how you went about the categorization process with your, with your text? Sure. Um, I, I like chapter four, too, now that I've seen what it is. So glad you did. Um, part of what I wanted to do with this is write a narrative history where the methodology was in the background, right? I didn't want to have a million charts and diagrams throughout the book. I didn't want to have 52.4% of this, right? I wanted it because some of my previous work, which was doing really high-level data mining, was all about, you know, nonstop charts, graphs, literal formulas, etc. So I wanted to move to something so that someone who had no interest in technology or methodology or data mining or anything like that could read this. Um, the logistics of what I did is, you know, this this was all hand done. I read all 4,000 ads. I made a database, um, good old FileMaker, which I've been using since one of its earliest incantations. Yeah, I've been using it since my first book. Uh, probably had two dozen plus categories of possible um, identifying features per ad. And I entered information in them. I coded them into numbers. I used the stats program, Jump, which I think is a really basic, good stats program, um, more accessible than some others for historians. And I, and I produced hundreds and hundreds of pages of tables and data. And then I spent a lot of months going over them, trying to decide, is this information useful? Is this a useful pattern? Is this pattern just caused by something that I'm not interested? Is this a real pattern? Is this, is this, what is this measuring? And once I did that, I could go and try to make statements, always returning to the documents, always saying, okay, I found this. Let me eyeball the documents. Does it support it? Um, and so in the chapter you talked about, I originally started saying, okay, one of the most common things people talk about in ads, if someone is a European runaway, it's where are they from? Are they English? Are they French? Are they Scottish? Are they from New York? Whatever. And in ads, as I'm sure you know, for escaped primarily slaves, but most African-Americans, they are just called Negro or mulatto. Right? There is usually not a, a birthplace or a national heritage identified. And at first, that seemed unremarkable to me because this is what I've read in every colonial document I've ever seen. But the more I thought about it, the more I wanted to think about what does that mean? What does it mean to displace people from their entire life histories? And it struck me that for Native people, too, this is about alienation. This is about dispossession of life histories of land. Right? Calling people Indian is a way of denying their attachment to tribal and nation, nationhood identities and community identities. And it is a way to turn people 
into the slaves they are supposed to be. And so as I thought about that, that was sort of one half of it. And the contrast for Europeans that occurred to me is really about the specificity and the idea of who gets to be granted control of their own life history, who gets to be granted the privilege of interiority so that their version of themselves matters. And that to me struck me as part of what is race making, Um, that it is part of the ways that some people get mapped onto complicated lives and feelings and emotions and experiences and other people's lives get replaced with the terms of the slave trade. And so that for me, that I think is a lot of chapter four and the way that native heritage figures into that, that this is a part of settler colonialism and land dispossession. So this is about how, how people of native descent, indigenous descent get turned into slaves, get reworked, get discursively made into enslaved people, right. As a way of negating their heritage. And it's interesting when, when you talk about the colonial uh, record specific to newspapers, um, you know, so, so a lot of my work now, um, the, the, the conference paper that I'm writing uh, is actually a shift from what I was originally going to do, where I'm actually focusing on the moment um, proceeding and incorporating the moment where uh, Dunmore's proclamation comes about during the American Revolution and kind of like looking at, um, I just finished up Julia Scott's uh, uh, co- The Common Wind um, for, for a later interview with him. And so that that book made me think about like the, the communication networks and thinking about how colonial records, right, how do colonial newspapers thought about the Negro insurrection in in, in in the American Revolution and how it infiltrated the colonial record. And I think it's important too because that that communication network is directly tied to the most important communication network of the time being newspapers, but also how people communicated when you talk about categorizing bodies. I also began looking at, right, what are what's the record say about women, right? Our runaway, our women... Uh, uh, enslaved women runaways, you know, how are they being characterized? And so then I had to think about what what does the colonial record call them, right? Because you want to try to, as you talk about, obviously, um, uh, um, as far as methodologies, right? Unfortunately, sometimes we have to incorporate that colonial ideology so we can then subvert it. So can you talk to us a bit about how the colonial record spoke about um, in, in, enslaved and also um Native women, and specifically with that too. Sure, um, and I will say just for your own work, there's a great, really interesting digital humanities dissertation by Jordan Taylor out of I think he's Illinois. Sorry, Jordan, if I got the wrong I state, but which looked at forty thousand newspaper headlines to think about how what gets reprinted where, where do colonial newspapers get their news from, who shares colonial newspaper information elsewhere. So really interesting. People are starting to try and figure out really to map how information travels. So side note, Um, in terms of enslaved women, one of the interesting things I found is that enslaved women had the least amount of information provided about them in all of the newspaper ads. Um, and And I thought about this for a while. And I can think about material reasons why this be. I can think about Stephanie Camp. Do people think that enslaved women are hiding temporarily, right? So they're in the neighborhood, so you don't need to describe them in detail. Um, Do people 
think they are less valuable. I don't think that's the case. We can look at Dinah Berry's work for some of that. Um, but what was interesting to me is that enslaved women get called, quote unquote, Negro wenches, right? Wench has become a racialized word by this time period, whereas in the 17th century, certainly in England, even the 17th century co- British colonies, wench is just a lower class woman. And there is a racialization that goes on in the colonial 18th century. And by this time, newspaper ads basically call them um, Negro or mulatto wenches. What's interesting is that the other people who are labeled have a, the other people who have sort of a special name are quote unquote squaws, right? And so I, I talk, I thought a lot about the way women don't, women generally don't get to have a sense of national belonging. Advertisements will talk about English men, but not English women. It will be women born in England or women born somewhere, you know, in London. Um, And thinking about the way, what it means not to have those strong ties to national belonging. I think for European descended women, it also means that where they came from didn't matter as much. But for enslaved women and native women, it went an extra step where they, there was a specific identity created to mark the intersection of gender and race in really negative ways. And I think too, yeah, that yeah, that 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 part's tough because, it, like you know, I've been trying to find and 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 it really you know it, it's one of those situations where each time I I type you know wench or uh, Negro wench, I always feel like it. I w- almost feel like the term loses its, you know, uh, it's the the graphicness, I guess, of it yeah. each, each time that my that my fingers type the word to where it's now I'm just trying to just sift through because there, that's hey if you're getting through four thousand records I you know that 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 ain't that that's no joke so that you know you you deserve just a the, just a hand clap of praise from the congregation just for that right well, um, thank you. It, it, it's why my books take a long time yeah hey hey you know if, if it's if it's every uh what the the your previous book was out what done in 08 I think it was 09 2006 but thank oh, you 2006. So, so, so so you know I, I was trying yeah. I was trying yeah, uh, close. I'll, I'll take it we'll just skim past that <laughs> all right so so you know around about 10 and so um mm-hmm. if that's the case then you know I we're all we're we're all blessed in the field for it um and and yeah, and, yeah because I because it's it's tough um so because that, yeah yeah let me just say that's a really good point and that is something if you noticed in this book I spent a lot of time in the introduction telling the story of one enslaved man and doing a little, if I may borrow uh, Sidia Hartman's term, a little critical fabulation about what the, when we're all we've got is a couple of ads suggesting he self-liberated from his masters. What do we, what do we do with that life story? How do we respect the, the trauma and the, the, and retell life stories in a book that is about the aggregate. And so I, I mean, some of that, I tried to make some structural choices. Um, I, I told that story in the introduction, every chapter starts with stories of individuals, right. To sort of suggest, remind readers, hopefully that even though I'm talking about 50% or twice as many, these are people. Um, and I'll give a shout out to Penn press. I, when I went to do the index, it really mattered to me that the 
every single name I mentioned in the book wind up in the index, that all of those individual lives get documented. And the, the names alone were longer than the total length my index was supposed to be. So um, Bob Lockhart for being okay with it. I said, here's the situation. Here's why it matters to me. Um, and he said, yep, go ahead. We'll make allowances for that. Um, and that, that kind of thing, you know, maybe it only matters to me, but when I look in the back and it was not easy, right? Because what I, I want people to notice, you know, when you look in the back and you get to the J's and you see Jack and you see, I don't know, maybe a dozen Jacks with no surnames who have to be identified by a year or a place or something else. It's important to me to continue to mark that, to, to, have that disruption to the way that scholarly practices reinscribe colonialism without realizing it, right? And to call attention to that, you know, the same way you're saying, every time you type squaw, it just becomes something you type. Part of this for me, every time we say, you know, quote unquote Negro or read it in a document, we forget, we get so used to all of us, right? It's hard not to. You can't get through this if you are mired in the tragedy all the time. And I think Marissa Fuentes' epilogue is one of the best things on the trauma and the, the, what it's like to write the history of slavery that I've ever read. So shout out to that as well. Yeah. 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 I, I saw, I saw her, uh, I saw Dr. Fuentes um, at, at Asala and um, I, I really made, and, and I said this in, in my, in my talk, uh, in my, in my, um, paper presentation at Asala that her uh, being Dr. Frentes's book was like a, was really like the, the, the template, right? It was the, the, the guide for folks going into the archive um, and specifically looking at trying, trying to, you know, uncover the, the, the stories of enslaved women, especially. Um, and so I was really happy to be able to tell her that uh, not only that I said that on Twitter, but I also said that, um, to to her in person because you know you you referred back to uh, the late Dr. Stephanie Camp and so as someone who is not um, in the academic field um, or at least in this field um, when she was still around one thing is for a dog on sure for damn sure is that you can see in the recent uh, UGA Press volume uh, sexuality and slavery and your work and so many other folks work that her um, that that you know, thankfully, her, her influence is still there. And even though I wasn't around to, 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 to know her, I can know her through the work that she's produced and the work of other people who have come either after her or were around with her as well. So that definitely that's a big thing, too, I see. Absolutely. And um, she was starting her she and I were starting I was starting this project and she was starting her project on black beauty around the same time. And so I had the privilege of I think we were on a couple panels and spent some time talking about our mutual interests. And even though the projects were different, I think they were getting at similar ideas of replacing the body in studies of race. Um, and I'm so glad that her work, I think one piece is in um Jennifer Morgan, Jenny Breyer, and Jim Downs' um, Connections volume. And another is in, as you said, um, Leslie Harris and Dinah Berry's Sexuality and Slavery volume that just came out. So I think it's great that people um, get to read those at this date. But it is, I mean, I wouldn't have written my epilogue. I wouldn't have thought that I could write the epilogue if I hadn't read Marissa Fuentes' 
epilogue, which was taking a real leap. Um, and I think she has broken ground in a ton of different ways to do scholarship that I think traditionally historians have said, well, there isn't evidence too bad. And I think I've said that wrongly. You know, 20 years ago, I would have said, well, if you don't have evidence, I guess you can't tell that history. Um, and so I think the work of a lot of people like Jennifer Morgan and Marissa Fuentes and lots of others more recently have opened up the ways that we can write histories um, and the kind of work we do. It's kind of funny because I am such an empirical historian. I mean, my first book on rape, I think I went to 30 different archives in this book. I didn't go to archives, but I, you know, looked at about 4,000 advertisements and tons of other materials. Um, So I care in part about evidence, but I also think that some of the most exciting work is how people are doing, having new approaches and making new, um, what do I want to say? Making new arguments that I think go beyond traditional historical approaches that I think are far more interesting than kind of by the book traditional kinds of historical reason. Yeah. And, and, you know, you had mentioned this a couple of times, and I think this is the perfect moment to bring it up. You talked about how in your previous book, you had, you had gone to, you know, a large amount, dozens of dozens of, of archives. And, and yet, you know, this was a, you know, one where you, you went through about 4,000 uh, newspaper ads. So can you talk to us about that particular decision? Because I really think the audience um, uh, would be interested in, in, in knowing the rationale why, because I feel like a lot of times when people, you know, see these books, they think about, you know, I've went to 3,000 archives across, you know, every <laughs> single continent on the face of the planet. You know, can, can you talk to us about that particular decision in this book? Absolutely. And I'm very upfront about this. Um, So I, obviously, University of California, I live in California. There are not local archives here. Going to archives means for the regions and work I do, at least traveling across the country. Um, And with my first book, yeah, I went to England. I went up and down the East Coast. I went to Kentucky. I went everywhere and looked at manuscripts. But I have a job now, thankfully, um, I have had a family where I have family responsibilities. I spent a couple years living in Australia, which if you thought California was far from archives, um, <laughs> Australia is pretty far. And so it became clear to me. And also on top of that, I spent a bunch of years doing administrative work for my university, which meant I worked 12 months a year. I couldn't spend a month going to an archive because I was expected to be at the job. And so I, I think that we need to be more upfront and talk about these kinds of issues about who has, who has the possibility of going somewhere for a month or six months or for a year. Linda Kerber from way back when has complained about the fact that residential fellowships are set up along the idea that, you know, the good male historian, his wife and children will just come along with him. And if she's lucky, she'll get to typeset his manuscript or, you know, do some editing for him. Um, And for lots of us, we have life responsibilities, be it elder care or family care of all kinds, that means that model doesn't work anymore. And so for me, I have not had a residential fellowship since, I think, 1999. Um, I have to balance a household and family and all of that kind of stuff. Um, So it's not possible for me to make those take the apply for those kind of fellowships, even if I were lucky enough to get them or spend six months or a year 
or a month even on the East Coast doing the kind of archival research I did in my first book. And so knowing that, I was fortunate enough to be doing this in an era of digitization where all these colonial newspapers are available online, behind a paywall, which is a problem, but available online. And that meant that this was the kind of work that I could do. They're short. You know, I can go through a decade of newspapers or a year of newspapers in a short amount of time. I can add a little bit to the database over and over. It's not like when you're just reading stuff and having to think about what does that document say? I have to remember it. I have to put it in this context or write this up. So it was um, constructing a project that worked with the realities of my work life and my personal life. And I think I'm very upfront about that because I think sometimes the academy assumes that everybody has certain kinds of resources and certain kinds of abilities and freedoms that are really outdated and problematic. And as long as we assume that those are the prerequisites for scholarship and success, we're leaving out people, many of whom may be doing really interesting and field-changing work, but cannot fit into the traditional mold. So that's why I'm upfront in the hopes that other people sort of maybe cracks the door a little bit for other people to um, change the way we define what you need to succeed in the historical profession. And and typically I ask this question um, in the beginning, but I think it's apt when you talk to when you talk about you know area and and, and also space. You know, you're you're dealing in in colonial America. What got you interested in? And I was I, I yeah I realize I'm in. I think you're the thirty second person that I've interviewed in the last year, and I think that I've never asked this question. What got you interested in, as uh, uh, as the folks at, at OI in Virginia would say, what got you interested in vast early America? <laughs> well, okay, so I got a couple answers to that. The politic answer is um, Rick Beeman and Richard Dunn, two wonderful historians at University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I went to University of Pennsylvania as an undergrad. I thought I wanted to be a political scientist. I sat in on one class and thought, oh, I do not want to be a political scientist. (laughs) Um, I did take a course my first semester with Rick Beeman. I think it was on Gordon Wood in the Constitution or something. Oh, God. Oh, wow. But I got the colonial history bug. And I will say I like the idea of colonial history um, because it strikes me the 19th century and the rise of cities and industrialization and capitalism – I think there's a lot of great stuff there. For me, the colonial period feels like there could have been alternatives. It feels like it's a society being built. And and it's probably a like pointless fantasy on my part, but I think there could have been different choices made. And so that's the politic answer. Um, the, the maybe more honest answer is I had a high school teacher. My I hated history all through high school. My senior year of high school, I had a history teacher who... I think was probably nuts. Like he believed the trilateral commission was controlling the government and buried gold in his backyard because he thought the banks weren't safe. And he, he, you know, if I I haven't gone back to see him, if he's even still alive, because if I saw him now, I probably really would not like him. So I'll keep my image. Right. (laughs) Um, But what was fascinating to me is he's the first person who said, History is about the story you make it. Yeah, he believed in conspiracies and all of this, but he suddenly, instead of just saying, oh, the founding fathers were these amazing, wonderful people who could do no wrong, 
He was saying, wait a minute, what if it was all a scam? What if they were just out to benefit themselves? What if everything you think you know isn't and you can uncover it and tell it? And that sort of detective work was exciting to me, right? That the world may not be as you have been told it is, was something that I thought, yeah, I can get on board with that because I've kind of thought that all along, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So that made history. And this is why it makes me sad when history is still taught as fact memorization. I think Mm -hmm. this is why we don't have enough history majors, this sort of idea that history is about memorizing the presidents or like telling a linear narrative. I think there are a thousand ways that we need to do history. And a lot of it is less about causality and result and more about understanding particular places and times. Because I think that's still, hopefully in my book, it shows this is not a story. My book is not a story of change over time. It's a story of a 25-year period that tries to explain. I mean, there's a before and an after, but it's trying to explain the daily life of racism, how racism works on a daily basis. And my hope is that that sheds a lot of light on the modern time period, a lot of necessary light, even though it's about the 18th century, even though it's not about causality, right? It's about understanding how the human world works a little bit better. Yeah. And, and, and I loved how you said, you know, it's like a, it's like detective work, right? So it's like charging your, your, your students and, and the graduate students that you have with like, Hey, you know, you, you, you think that there's something fishy out there. Well, go out and find it. <laughs> and, and really that that's to a certain degree, um, at least how I think about this profession broken down to it's almost barest bones. Like that's, that's to a certain degree what it is. Um, and, and, and I think that's that and framing it that way to me gets me excited. Like, I, I feel like, Oh man, you know, I'm tired, but let me go read these books that are, that are stacking up here in this room. Well, and I will say, right. I mean, part of this is, this is how we got the field of African-American history and history of sexuality and queer history and indigenous history and, you know, settler colonialism, all of this, people went out and said the way we're conceptualizing this, the way we're telling the history, it's not, it doesn't speak to me. This is not what I see. And that's one of the reasons I think structure is as, in, is as important to intellectual development, who is part of the academy, whose work is seen as legitimate by the academy has a lot to do with the histories we wind up telling. And, and with the histories that you tell, something that I also thought about too, um, I remember taking... Uh, I forget, it might have been an American Revolution class or, or some history class. And we had to talk about economics. And then it typically, you know, everybody just said, uh, you know, we, we all crowded around as graduate students like, all right, y'all, we need to work with each other this week. Because it's economic-ish. <laughs> and it, this ain't fun. Like this, this, but, but, you know, it's not economic per se with your work, but, but with all of the demographic breakdowns, which take up a, 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 a large... Mm-hmm. Uh, a fairly large chunk of of your book would you know what got you interested in incorporating so much of that with this work too because i think that it's it it, it adds something you know it adds a bit of that adobo that lemon pepper it adds <laughs> a bunch of seasoning on this book to really make it taste really good well thank you that's that's one of the nicest compliments I've gotten on the and original compliments I've gotten. Um, 
<laughs> I definitely wouldn't think of myself as an economic historian. Every time, yeah, every time someone says capitalist transformation or market revolution, uh, my brain just shuts off and it just doesn't make sense to me, honestly. It just doesn't make sense to me because I feel like it erases so much of what was going on in history in the pursuit of this, you know, big level important narrative. Um, that's just me. Someone's free to email me and help me understand it if they would like. I'm, I'll take it on. As my there you go. <laughs> um, but in terms of, you know, I think I am kind of quantitatively based for a historian. It's why I had that interlude between the two books doing this sort of data mining stuff. Um, for me, it's that what I saw in my first book, which is that if you put enough information together, there are patterns that you don't see. And partly I did this because in the first book on rape, you know, when I started out, my advisor and everyone else said, oh, there's not enough for you to write a book on that. There's, don't do a dissertation on that. Don't, you know, rape, that's, it's just on the side. It's just a little thing. You can't say anything meaningful about it. And so I went kind of crazy proving that I had enough evidence. Um, and I think in this book, a lot of the demographics and breaking things down and figuring out is a way to see difference in patterns. Right. If a lot of people, more people have probably looked at enslaved runaways than servant runaways. And I wanted to put the two together to think about how a race based slave system changes how physicality is viewed. I'll give a really quick example. Um, enslaved people, when um, the people advertising for them describe their height, list their height, they're, I think, something like five times more likely to use a qualitative descriptor tall, middling, short than an exact height. And this is curious to me because certainly we look at people like George Washington or William Byrd or others who keep lists of the chattel who they own. They list people's heights. It's a common thing. It's a common sort of identifying feature. But in advertisements, it wasn't seen as necessary, right? And a valuative judgment replaced what should have been a very objective, at least in theory, um, identifier. And uh, that's not something that I would have been able to see if I hadn't been doing those comparisons, right? And so, and that helped me to think about who gets to, whose body is seen as a group of objective facts and whose is seen as constructed through the master's eyes, right? A, a, a reflection of more of, I mean, everyone's constructed through the master's eyes, but enslaved people, it's more about desires and beliefs and construction separate from the person's individual life beliefs and history. And so that's, that's the kind of reason I think that comparisons sort of demographic comparisons can be important and quantification can be a really useful thing. As long as people recognize that not, you know, so many things I threw away because not everything stands up to quantitative analysis sources, sources. This is the problem with history. Sometimes I wish I were a sociologist who could go out and design a questionnaire (laughs) and get all the answers I want. For history, we never have the answers that we want. And so figuring out how we can circle around and approximate things and recognize what is a reliable answer and what isn't, I think is key to doing the kind of quantification that I'm interested in and writing a history that I hope winds up having meaning and even maybe some special spice. And like I said, you you added that adobo, that that cayenne, all that. It, it's definitely very peppery and, and definitely 
very very palatable for 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 all of us um yeah and um you know there there there's so many more questions that I can ask you uh but you know, in the in the short time that we have left, uh, could you could you talk to us a bit? You know, Colonial Complexions. It's you know finally out to the world here in 2018. Um, you know, what what else can we look forward to? Um, because you don't always, you know, you don't o- only rather uh, write books. You you're engaged in so many other uh, uh, fields as well. Can you tell us a bit about um, what other projects you have lined up? Sure, because. You know, we never rest on our laurels. Just go, go, go. <laughs> so, so I've been. It seems, it seems, it's becoming a pattern that I flip back to the digital humanity stuff after I've got a book out. Um, I've been doing some work recently, um, looking at um, critical analysis of scholarly databases, thinking about the ways that algorithms reproduce and expand racism and sexism. So, I've given some talks, writing up some stuff on that. Might appear in hopefully the not too distant future. I just finished along with the Omohundro Institute and the William & Mary Quarterly. We just did a workshop on digital research in early America um, that really out here at UC Irvine, bunch of pre-circulated papers. I'll be writing something up for that for the William & Mary Quarterly. One of the really interesting things there, it was a focus on digital humanities, but the entire two-day workshop was structured around what are our responsibilities as historians? How do we write about indigeneity? Um, how, how do we do ethical digital humanities, especially about colonial America? And especially recognizing that the people we write about in colonial America, many of whom have living descendants, right? What do we owe to the communities that we write about who are still part of our society today? How do we how do, we do those interfaces? Um, and thinking about, I guess the big picture for me is, how to do ethical digital humanities and how we're also excited sometimes about the digital turn. And again, I don't want to put the brakes on because I'm excited about it, but also thinking critically about the methodologies that we use. What are the effects of the methodologies that we use? What are the unintended side effects of the methodologies we use? And what are our responsibilities, Um, especially in terms of writing the histories of marginalized groups if we're writing the histories of people who underwent genocide or centuries of enslavement, um, what are those added levels of responsibility that we should willingly and happily take on? And how does taking them on make for better scholarship? Well, hey, no, I was yeah. say, oh, I'm sorry. There's, well, there's more. I was there's say, more. There's I suppose more. I'm writing another book. I'm actually thinking about going back to um, the first book on rape and writing, trying to see if I can write in-depth narrative histories of individuals in the book. Right. What happens if we don't look at the single moment of sexual violence and we try to write histories of lives? Um, I'm, again, inspired by people like Marissa Fuentes, by Jennifer Morgan's piece in Small Acts that recently came out, really, where she's talking about 17th century African enslaved women and manages to recreate these narratives of their work as political theorists. That's just so impressive. Um, I take inspiration from that and think about, right, what, what did I miss the first time around that I could do better, do differently, write a narrative of individuals instead of a structural history of rape? I'm done now. Is that enough? <laughs> All right. No, I, I, no. Wow. No. That, hey, that that that's a whole lot, and you know, and and you and you showing as well how you know also like change over time. Like you write a book, but it doesn't like it, it's in an ecosystem, right? Of different, uh, of different books and of different 
folks writing it and, and thinking and theorizing. And what it goes to really show is that, you know, when you write a book, you know, a lot of times it seems like people go back to similar concepts, you know, later in, in, in time because, you know, they read something, they engage with content maybe at a museum that changes their minds. And so it's really it's so, so cool, especially as a as a PhD student to see that. But it, because also what it and to a certain degree does, it 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 you know, it takes a burden off of our, off, uh, off of my shoulders where it's like, dang, you always feel like you got to say the most original, you know, thing, this and this, but it's like, it's about the process and you don't know where the process is going to take you, but you want to keep on engaging uh, with folks because in community, that's where, you know, a lot of these, you know, phenomenal, you know, uh, field defining and, and shaping um, ideas and, and concepts really come from. Absolutely. And I'm a big believer in, not just looking beyond your field in history, but looking to other disciplines, looking to gender and sexuality studies, looking at indigenous studies, looking across the spectrum, obviously African-American studies, but even things further away. I learn an awful lot from criminologists and I learn an awful lot from even people in the sciences who are theorizing, right, how inclusion and exclusion works. Um, so I think the more... I think it's really important for us not to get mired down in our particular subdiscipline and to think as broadly as possible and to recognize that that makes history better, right? The more we are open to different approaches, the better it is for all of us. And that's why we have folks like Dr. Sharon Block, <laughs> professor of history at UC Irvine out there in California. You know, it's about 8.02 over here. So that means it must be, you know, five o'clock in and such out there. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely happy that, you know, uh, at long last, we were finally able to get together. And, and I, I'll say this, I'm actually glad, looking back, of course, that it happened this way, because I cannot imagine a better conversation going, going forward. Well, thank you so much. I am glad we finally managed to get our cross country schedules to match. So thank you. There we go. There we go. And, you know, once again, shout out to Zara. Shout out to the folks at the University of Delaware, where I presently am looking outside. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. And uh, th- for bringing us together in person, which makes our uh, which makes our conversation right now the, the, the uh, even stronger. And once again, folks, we ha- we've had the honor of having the phenomenal historian Dr. Sharon Block on the program to discuss her recently published book by our friends at Penn Press entitled Colonial Complexions, Race and Bodies in 18th Century America. Once again, folks, my name is Adam McNeil, your host representing the University of Delaware. Till next time, folks, over and out.